Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them. I understand that and I hope you do too. Thank you. And... Uh, he said, it's Phil Verasso here, I'm going to blow your head off. And I said, what do you think you're doing ringing me here? He said, I know where you live. I'm not fussy whether I get you or your wife or your kids, but I'll fucking get you. My wife was listening in an extension interjection and said, that's nice talk. I'd never met or spoken with Robin or Rob Bailey until a few weeks ago. Rob had been a member of Victoria Police for almost 30 years, but our paths had never crossed. He retired at the rank of Chief Inspector after working in some of the toughest squads, including the armed robbery squad. You wouldn't normally associate toughness with fraud, but today you'll learn what it takes to be a top investigator, and it doesn't necessarily involve murders and rapes. Rob was a specialist forensic fraud investigator and did an aggregate of 11 years with Victoria Police Fraud Squad at three ranks. Today, he takes us into a complicated, what he describes as a basically uninvestigable, I think that's the right word, uh, messy file that he had handed and asked to have a look at. And it contained a plethora of fraudulent insurance claims, false personal injury claims, kickbacks, and many, many more twists and turns. So apart from this basically uninvestigable, it's easy for you to say, a file for which 17 people were ultimately charged, Rob was involved in many high-profile investigations, including being a vital and seriously injured witness to the Russell Street bombing outside the police station uh, in March of 1986. And Rob has spoken 
to my dear friends Michelle and Emily from Australian True Crime about Russell Street. So I'm not going to steal their thunder or their good stories, but I highly recommend you have a listen to Rob being interviewed by those women. It is incredible on so many levels. But also, in uh, apart from Russell Street, Rob was also part of an Australian peacekeeping mission for the 1974 Turkish invasion of Cyprus. He's authored a book, uh, so you want to be a policeman, eh? And so much more that I frankly don't have time to share that with you. Not surprisingly, Rob, like so many other police, still bears mental scars of his time as a policeman and also his time in Cyprus. And he's become a fierce advocate for those who don't have a voice or they can't find one. And Rob's not out of the woods yet, like many of us, but he has learned to manage his mental health. Rob believes that many deaths of police veterans may not be as innocuous as initially determined, which is why he is so passionate in reaching out to members who've retired, often broken, never having admitted to their families and loved ones, let alone themselves, that the job damaged them. There's so many investigations that I'd love to chat to Rob about, and I'm sure we'll have Rob back. But today, we're going to talk about that fascinating, intriguing fraud investigation that I touched on before. So thanks for your time, Rob, and welcome to NFI. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Hey, um, I was just thinking before, I was listening on the radio this morning, uh, have you got any thoughts? This is a question out of left field, but have you got any thoughts on Paul Denyer? And he's, uh, oh, what did they say? He's not going to have any opportunity to ever, I believe, apply for uh, for parole. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, look, I think most of the community would hold the same view as me and probably you, that people that commit crimes such as this should never be given the opportunity of, of actually getting parole yeah. in any situation uh, other yeah. than, as they say, for uh, terminal illness or um, inevitable death through some other thing. But no, look, I'm, I'm relieved and I'm sure the family of the victims are very much relieved yeah. on this decision. Yeah, I thought it was, um, well, to be honest, I thought it was a no-brainer, but I know it's not that easy legally, but I just think, oh, thank goodness. Mm. Uh, it's put a lot of people's minds at ease. And as you say, uh, particularly the victims and their uh, the victims' families and friends. So, Rob, before we talk about this amazing fraud investigation, uh can I first congratulate you on being awarded the Victoria Police Star Award, which has only been awarded to 125 Victoria Police members. Uh, can you tell us what that award is um, and why you're awarded it? Well, that award is um, is given to police uh, members who were, who were placed in situations of, um, of serious injury or, or death. Uh, or threat of death, I mean, and uh, would otherwise be awarded nothing. So uh, given my history, and if people have the time to read my book, I was placed in uh, those situations on many occasions, but predominantly the Russell Street bombing. And okay. um, and uh, I was very grateful to receive that from Ken Lay. It was uh, pretty much a highlight. So, I mean, most of these, the awards of those, I think it's about 135 now, Okay. Um, yep. A posthumous award, so I feel I'm very lucky to be alive to receive it uh, in person. Very, very honoured, I imagine. And from what, because I, I had a listen to uh, your 
interview with Michelle and Emily and what you did on that day. As I said, we won't go through it today because, um, as I said, I don't want to steal my, their thunder, but it was amazing, incredibly brave and courageous. So, um, you know, strength to you, Rob. It's an unbelievable situation you were uh, faced with and that um, you didn't shy away from. No, I think I didn't have much choice. Why did you just go into automatic mode? You'd know, Narelle, you just, you really just, um, you know, the thing is, and as I won't go into it as you say, but um, given that I was in Cyprus during the Turkish invasion of Cyprus, which we'll talk about another day, I got, mm. I had been blown up on a number of occasions and I'd witnessed incendiary devices and explosions and whatever, and I basically had no reaction to it at all. I thought, oh, well, another day at the office. Basically, <laughs> yeah, and and I, I laugh. I shouldn't. I feel that was probably wrong because um, a young policewoman lost her life yes, on that horrible. day at uh, Russell Street. Yeah, but um, you know, it's funny you say that, Rob, because I found as police, for whatever reason, I think a lot of us, maybe all of us, I don't know, but we almost run towards the danger rather than running away and I just think it's an innate thing you don't I don't know if you mean it or not but I am like a bee to a honeypot when it comes to it's almost the more serious the uh the situation the more I want to be there do you did you find you were like that or did you just happen to be what they refer to as a shit magnet (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the the story was if shit's happening Bailey will be there somewhere But uh, look, to to reflect on that, you know, I was in the military as well for seven years part-time, but I did a lot of full-time duty. And uh, my training and probably your training, and and again for another day in terms of PTSD and whatever, I have got no idea what flight is. I was never taught flight. I was only, it was only ever fight. And uh, so, and as I say in my book, if, uh, if something's happening and everyone's running away from it, you'll find us running at it. And it's it's an instinctive thing, as you say, um, but it's it goes back to our training, and and you know I've always thought I'm here for the greater good, and you can't get away from that. And I mean, you just do what you have to do. I mean, it's not bravery. I think it's stupidity. <laughs> Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. Yeah. No, it's just funny. Even now, I'm, you know, having been out of the police now for, God, 10, 11 years, I still, if there's something going on, I automatically want to go and just help or be there or, you know, as obviously just a member of the community now, not as a police person, but uh, it never, ever leaves you, does it? Narelle, I won't go into it, but I've had two incidents in the last six years. Um, and the most serious one was a guy that produced a knife on the train and was going to slit the throat of this Indian boy. Well, um, I disarmed him. <laughs> And later he was charged with the knife offence and everything. I took it off him. Now he was, I'm 76. I would have been 70 at the time. And somehow or other, I either bluffed my way out of it. I've got no idea, but, but I was able to disarm him and defuse the situation. Now, uh, generally you would think any member of the public, you would advise them not to get involved in that. But as you say, it was just, I've got to do something here. I can't sit back and watch this. No, and uh, I wasn't aware of that, obviously, but 
Did you find that anyone else um, helped you or were you pretty much on your pat, Malone? It was, it was fairly – it was in a train, but there were probably only two or three other people on the train, so I'm not even sure oh, okay. if they saw it. So, no, but yeah, it was okay. certainly captured on their CCTV, which was, which was great yeah. for charging the guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about mental health, uh, obviously, and, you know, the stress of being in the job. I also – I read – that in your role as a chief inspector, at one stage you're in charge of audiovisual and you had the difficult, unenviable task of viewing and rating 2,000 child abuse videos for court purposes. And I really admire the fact that you undertook those tasks because you didn't actually have to, but you wanted to because your subor- you wanted to know what your subordinates were doing, what their tasks were, and uh, you wanted to understand what their role was and what it entailed. Uh, many of us have been permanently damaged from this process, but I now believe that the process has changed and members only view a certain percentage of child abuse material. Um, any inf- offences involving children affect us deeply, uh, but that is another level, isn't it? I'm just wondering, do you have any lasting effects uh, after having to undertake uh, that particular task or similar ones? Uh, we haven't got time, Norelle. <laughs> yeah, I get that, Rob. Yeah, yeah. So, but obviously that means a yes, does it? Yeah, I mean, that was horrible. But, I mean, managers these days, I would hope, adopt the process that I certainly think my subordinates will say that I did. I worked with them and that is the only way you can adequately represent uh, staff and provide the necessary materials for your staff to do the job. And um, and I still hold that view. And, and besides, it's far more rewarding. Mm. Yeah, but you say that, Rob, but I didn't have a lot of supervisors or superiors that would do that. Uh, I'm not saying that they, I don't know, maybe they didn't think about it, but I think that just shows such good management of your troops, let's say, when you, you want to understand what they are doing. It's a bit like um, an inspector or something going back on the div van with a, you know, a trainee for a couple of shifts. I, I just, I love that because I just think it shows that you really care. You care about what somebody's doing and how it affects them. Norelle, I love the action. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Rob, I miss the action. Yeah. Oh, I really yeah. do miss that that adrenaline boost. I still want it. I still search for it, and um, yeah. Yeah. and I just love doing. I I like doing. I mean, the, um, a lot of a lot of managers in the Victoria Police when I were there uh, were like me. Um, I'm not sure it's the same now, unfortunately, from what I hear. Mm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not hearing a lot of great uh, reports. I'm sure there's some, and you know, I get to speak to a lot of amazing people still in policing. Um, but yes, it's certainly it, it's wanting a little bit. But anyway, that could be yet another podcast. Uh, um, but but <laughs> let's move on to uh, what you refer to as the RACV fraud file, and I only know a little bit about it, but it just proves, doesn't it, about uh, the detail, time and effort that police go to 
uh, to prove a case and have somebody charged, well, actually 17 charged, as is the case here. That's a huge effort, Rob. It was um, it was an un- <laughs> Detective Senior Sergeant Jeff Robertson gave me the job with a smile on his face back in uh, March 1982 and yeah. my first look at it and uh, to do an assessment was I went back into his office and I said, you've got to be expletive deleted joking. <laughs> uh, it, it, it involved a multiplicity of accidents, work cover, uh, um, insurance claims, personal injury and other serious uh, matters arising out of about 128 accidents involving between one and four cars and at that particular stage there was no indication of who was an offender, who was, an, who was a witness or anything. So I'll, I'll move into how we, how we manage it if you like because... Oh, yes, please. Uh, it, the, the, uh, the, the podcast is yours, Rob, because it's a fascinating uh, story. Look, it is and I, I looked at it and I thought, well, actually at that time I'd done a business degree and I'd also um, done a a course in computer programming at Warnable Institute of Technology which, because I was just interested. And as a result of that, I thought, look, we, we could – the only way we can investigate this is if we do a, a computer program. Now, back in that those days, the computer uh, that the Victoria Police mainframe was on the – basically in the basement of uh, Russell Street and it took mm. up the whole of the basement. It was the size of a normal uh, yep. Sherman tank or bigger. <laughs> And uh, so, and in actual fact, it was the first time that anyone used uh, that sort of technology to investigate a matter. So, and I got the services of a fellow by the name of Neil Leary, who was a constable down there, turned out to be a fantastic guy. And I sat down with him for two, three weeks and, and wrote what we call the concatenations, you know, which joins all the matters together, all the evidence you've got or what you have. Mm. Well, it was really information at that time, which turned out some of it to be evidence. Anyway, at the end of the three weeks, he came back to me a little while later and he said, well, look, this is what I've done. Uh, how does that work? And I said, either he said or I said, you've actually put round wheels on this car <laughs> rather than the square wheels you usually get. And his comment was, well, normally people come to me and say, look, I, I want this and leave it all up to me. He said, you had the time and effort to sit down and explain um, exactly what specifically what you wanted and gave me um, a, a roadmap to follow. So what emanated out of that was called the green folder. Now, whilst this was all happening and um, and that was actually completed, we engaged, I think it was about, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 15 data entry clerks. Now, this is the old punch card operator's days. And um, and we ha- I had police out doing all sorts of uh, – collecting all sorts of evidence about all the people involved and whatever. And, of course, back in the day, that was all legwork. So it was brilliant stuff. And we pumped all this stuff in there. And out of that, we got what was known as the green folder. Now, the green folder, as I work through this, um, actually uh, joined together – all of these potential offenders, but uh, then came the uh, the uh, the task of actually getting out. And I, look, if there's any prospective detectives or investigators listening, I'll give you one word of advice: get off your ass, go out. Mm. 
knock mm. on doors, go through letterboxes, rubbish tins, talk to people, don't do it from your desk, get out there. And I I, I put together a very small team of uh, detectives because um, what I think and I still think that uh, if you fill the void with um, 100 detectives, you'll have 100 different problems. So, yeah, uh, you're right. Oh, yep. So I had Steve O'Neill, who was a detective senior constable, Errol Mustafa, who I engaged for a little while, who was a Turkish, who spoke a lot of Turkish, and the, the offenders in this case turned out to be Greeks and Turks predominantly, mm. Mm. and um, and one or two other people that came in and out of the, the project. And um, and uh, so we put all this stuff together, and it went for three years. And we – one of the things back in the day, you could actually charge people and withdraw them. These days, of course, if you do that and withdraw them, you'll have costs awarded against you, Yeah, and which the Victoria Police are very – firmly don't wish, wish you to do so but back in those days I said to my team and I did have the odd person coming in and out that I needed specialist people that I could rely on and yeah. I sat down and said look this is so bloody big that we've got a rough idea who the main offenders were which was George and, and Chris Tringus and they had a panel shop. And just for background what these people were doing were they, they were um, it involved all the insurance companies, not just the RACV. It was just called the RACV Inquiry for Ease of Operation. But what they were doing, they were smashing up cars and uh, they were making claims, multiple claims to various insurance companies. And back in those days, the insurance companies didn't talk to each other. So they were claiming one accident with four cars at four different insurance companies and getting the payouts. And what you needed in this whole exercise is you needed um, rogue assessors, you needed a lawyer, you needed an accountant and whatever. So we narrowed the field down in that regard as as matters wore on. But um, these claims, uh, as I say, to a multiple, and the the insurance companies were rather reluctant to talk to us because of they wanted to maintain their their own reputation. But anyway, we we influenced to do it. And one of the things I did, I went to the Insurance Council of Australia some time later, and I said to them, I said, you need to have an external database where the basic information of every accident goes into, which marries up people registration numbers and a few other uh, a few other material things, which they did and they still have that now, thank God, because hitherto they didn't know anything that was going on. They just paid out. Mm. So we worked through the investigation and and um, interviewed basically hundreds of people, you know, between three or four and the, the odd person I brought in to do it. And Errol, I must say, the Turkish fellow was invaluable through this exercise. But we'd bring people in, and, and to give you an example of how much information that we were able to store in this particular program, you know, we'd, I'll give you an example. We'd bring someone in and say, well, uh, no, I don't know George Tringus. And we'd say, well, that's funny because he sponsored you to come to Australia. Um, and we had another guy and lots of these, oh, that's funny, you live beside him in Greece. Um, or <laughs> And they just – uh, quite often they'd come in and I've got to say Steve O'Neill was the best detective I've ever worked with in my life. He was a freak of a man and we're still mm. the best of friends. We're brothers. Mm. And he'd say mm. to some people, what do you got in your pocket? And they'd say nothing. And this would be out of the blue. 
Yeah. And um, anyway, a search would ensue. Not sometimes they weren't real happy about it, but it happened. And there'd be a note mm. from George Stringus or one of the other um, offenders uh, telling them what to say to us. So that was good okay. evidence in the end. And yeah, that's not that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, but so it, it wore on, and there were some very funny things that happened during this whole investigation. I've got to relate one of them. The the the, uh, the yeah. lawyer that was involved, and this was a fellow by the Michael Fran- by the name of Michael Francis Webb. Now he had an office in Greensboro, Webb Stag and Tompkin, uh, which was on the second level at Greensboro in the main in Main Street. And at that time, it just so happened I was doing an. Um, a part-timer as a security person before you needed a licence and most of the coppers worked with me at a shopping centre there. We had about five. We did the security there and I'd yeah. work shifts there deliberately when his office was operating and he was in there. So I'd put a, uh, a vest on and like a worker and I'd go up on the roof and I'd be looking at him and noting who was going into his office uh, which were some of the offenders we later found out, but I was, you know, getting descriptions, took some photographs when I could. And whatever. we got to the stage where we were waving at each other and, and <laughs> move forward. I'll, I'll, I'll move forward a couple of years to when uh, I said to Steve at one stage, I said, okay, we're right to go and get web. And um, so he took a team out there with search warrants and seized everything and whatever. And, and even that was funny because uh, Webb was – got a tape recorder and said, I'm going to record you. And Steve said, well, I'll give you a copy of mine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> anyway, so they seized And I said to Steve, I said, it's going to be very funny when you bring him back to my office or our office was at the uh, uh, commercial crime group. We had a special office for those major crimes in William Street. Um, yeah. And I worked there with Lex Lazary, who all the coppers all know was, was just a great barrister. And he was on this case for three years. It was that involved. Mm. Um Anyway, and I said, it would be quite funny when you bring him into the office. And anyway, so I brought him into the office. And he took one look at me and he said, don't I know you from somewhere? <laughs> uh, yes. I didn't know. I didn't, let, I didn't let on where it was. And he was shaking his head. So I'm sure I've seen you before. Uh, I didn't tell him I was on the roof of the bloody Greensboro shopping centre. <laughs> but anyway, the twist, in the, the twist in the tale with that is that 26 years later, and I'll, I'll get back to the nitty-gritty of the investigation, but – the twist in the tail was here was after I got out of the police force, I was um, I had a license, I was a licensed investigator, and did some pretty high level stuff. And I got a phone call one day, and he said, um, "I'm a lawyer, and I was wondering if you'd be interested in doing um, some investigation work for a high profile person in Victoria." And I said, "Well, it depends what it is and what's involved, but yes, I'm certainly happy to look at it." And anyway, he said, well, my name's Michael Webb and I'm, my address is uh, here in East Malvern. So I've gone, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I've driven out there and I, before I went, I rang Steve and I said, I don't believe this. It couldn't possibly be the same Michael Francis Webb. Anyway, I got there and, and uh, I sat down and it was him. And this is 26 years later. And, yeah. and, I, and I said, you know who I am, don't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, why do you want me? And uh, I've got to drink my own bathwater here a bit, but he said, said, well, you're like a bloody dog at a bone. And he said, and I asked, uh, I think it was Neil Comrie. Uh, I think he said Neil Comrie, but I can't remember. It was certainly a commissioner. He said, who's a private investigator that you would recommend to me? And he said, 
he, I was told that if I didn't get Rob Bailey, well, you haven't got the best investigator. So here you are. Anyway, it was Jeff Edelston that he – and we can do another podcast on that because I can do a full hour on Jeff Edelston and what I did for him and, and the nitty-gritty yeah. because it's a bloody good story. But anyway yeah. – just, just just give us a little window. Um, Jeff was a lovely, lovely man. He was just hopeless mm-hmm. with money. I mean, he got charged uh, with conspiracy for uh, – um, uh, to do certain things in New South Wales. I've got to be a bit careful. But he, okay. he should never have gone to prison for it. Um, he was taken down for uh, lots and lots of money. One was $800,000 that I did with uh, Jeff Francis. I hope Jeff doesn't mind me using his name. And mm. we took the brief to the police and, they, and it was a walk-up start. You had two oh, – we had 25 years of police fraud investigation behind this brief, which you couldn't jump over, and the police said, no, we're not touching it, he's an unreliable witness. And our comment was, you don't need him to give evidence. We've got the money trail that was absolutely stitched. But anyway, and I worked in the office with Jeff on some other projects, which we'll talk about another day. Hey, 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 hang on, you've got my interest. Don't go away from Jeff Edelston. Well, Jeff sold all his um, medical practices for $110 million. Now we're going back... 10 years, I suppose, and he's dead mm. now. He died about four years ago. But, mm. but I actually worked with Jeff, for Jeff, quite some time now. The, the guy was basically illiterate, lovely man. You know, he, he really yeah. didn't deserve uh, – he brought it all on himself because he was just uh, infatuated with young women and they mm. were infatuated with his money. And um, mm. <clears throat> so anyway, but, I mean, for example, I'll give you one example. He called me one day. And it was mobile phone times, and he rang me one day, and I had my partner with me, and he said, uh, "Come in, can you come into my office? I've got a real problem." So I went in. He had the uh, the basement and the ground floor in a office building in um, Collins Street. So I went in there, and Bryn Edelston was there, mm. and um, he said, uh, "Here's a list of all my cars," and he had a list of, I think it was twenty three cars, Rolls Royces, Maseratis millions of dollars worth of cars. And he said, I don't know where this one is. I don't know where this one is. I don't know where this one is. And I said, Jeff, I think I read in the paper that you reported these being stolen, didn't you? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I think that might have been a little bit early in uh, the whole process. Anyway, I found them all. So they were stuck yeah. in the garage in Adelaide and I, that's, that's you know, I won't go into that, but I had to yeah. make a very quick phone call to the police and say, look, I think there's been a mistake made here. And uh, anyway, they <laughs> didn't pursue that investigation. Um, but hey, Rob, know, how, did, how, did, how did he make his money? Oh, he had, he had 110 medical uh, places, so like... Uh, yeah, but how yeah. did he make the money? Like if he was illiterate, obviously, uh, you know, life would have been pretty tough for him initially, I imagine. Like how would he make the money to be able to afford that sort of a lifestyle, Well, well you know? David Jones Penman, uh, Jim's mowing. I hope Jim might be listening, but I don't know, but he's dyslexic. He's dyslexic. Totally. I okay. mean, he didn't know how to sign a contract. And there's another story where he, he, he gave his half his business to his CEO and his CFO because he just signed a contract because he couldn't read them. Okay. So I've, I've come across that quite often where the people who – the people, a lot of people hand their business over to other people either through stupidity, they haven't got the talent, 
but they might have some really good ideas. And Jeff had some really, really good ideas. And so did, obviously, uh, uh, Jim's mowing or David Jones Penman had some really good yeah. ideas, didn't know how to put them into effect, and it burned them all, it burnt them in the end. So uh, yeah. it's, it's not uncommon. It's honestly not yeah. uncommon. Funny you should say that. Over the last couple of days, I've been talking to a lady, a very, very uh, prominent and very successful woman, and I didn't realise that she uh, uh, is is dyslexic. I can't even say it. Um, And I've never – I didn't know. No. Uh, Gee, gee, it's well – people can hide very well, can't they, from dyslexia, but uh, it it can – well, obviously, cause immeasurable damage to people because, as you say, like there's Jim's mowing. He signs something because he doesn't really understand what he's so- sign- signing, and people are taking advantage of him. Yeah, or people. Yeah, yeah. Well, look yeah. for another day, but he, you know, I vetted some of the, you know, he was going to start up Jim's uh, uh, collection agency to get bad, you know, debt collection, <laughs> and I said. <laughs> I said, yeah, you want five minutes to ruin your reputation because the bikey gangs will take that over in five minutes and they'll be shooting people to get the money. And I said, then you'll be wearing the mantle for it. So it's uh, not a good idea. But anyway, there's there's four or five things there that he decided he'd do on, for another day. But uh, anyway, yeah, in, yeah. in the end, I fell out with him a bit because of one of those ventures and he went he went ahead with it anyway. And uh, and I said, well, you feel like I take my advice and I want to work for you. And anyway, it crashed completely, cost him millions. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's yeah. for another day. Gee, you're right. There's a lot there. Oh, yes. oh my goodness. Um, however, getting back to this investigation, um, uh, it got pretty messy there for a while. And in, um, when was it, 23rd of July, one of the things I've kept is all the reports on this and my diary. Uh, 23rd of mm-hmm. July, 1982, I got a call at the fraud squad and an ethnic voice said, I'm going to blow your head off. And I said, oh, I had a, I've got a transcript. I said, that's good. It must mean we're getting to the truth. The caller then just hung up. Mm. The following day, uh, was it the following year? The following day, I interviewed, we interviewed you uh, Tringus and Chris Tringus, husband and wife. Now, Chris was one of the main offenders. His brother was the main offender, and Chris was basically a pawn and later died of cancer, which was very unfortunate. I gave him his last smoke, actually. He wasn't a bad... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Bloke, anyway, he, he, he was telling us the truth. And after I charged uh, him and Chris, I took and we charged him with about 40 offences. And he, came, he took me aside and he said, Rob, he said, you're doing a good job, and I'm reading the transcript here, but you must be very careful. These men are very bad men and they will get you. The Turkish policeman is not safe either. either. Just be very careful. Oh, so that was yeah. the start of a number of different threats that I had. Um, and where are we? Um, I had a phone call. I'm just the date doesn't really matter. I got a phone call. Actually, what happened one night? I'm during the middle of this investigation. I'd act, we'd raided quite a number of panel shops, and uh, we were putting a lot of pressure on people. And I mean uh, legal pressure, but we had yeah. warrants and all that sort of stuff. But we didn't muck around. We did not muck around. And I, it, it's quite funny. Steve O'Neill will tell you that we'd been interviewing someone and. And what we did, as I said, we went round the periphery. We didn't go for the jugular on the main offenders because what you're going to do is, is would be would be counterbalancing what we really wanted to do. We wanted to make sure we nailed them and give them no escape routes. So we were locking up his daughter and his cousin and his uncle and whatever because they'd all had accidents, of course. And they knew. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and what they were doing were exerting enormous pressure on the main offenders. Um, you know, they'd, they'd be saying to George and and the assessors and whatever, "Hey, listen, I've been charged with all these offences, and you buggers talked us into doing it." So that's that's the sort of environment mm. that we created meaningfully. We meant to do that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> anyway, I'm in the kitchen one day, and my one of my daughters, Rachel answered the phone and it was a girl, Lisa Verasso, who went to school with Rachel. And I heard Rachel say, oh, yeah, we live at 302 Circles Road, Templestowe. And I grabbed the phone and I said, Rachel, who is that? And she said, Lisa Verasso. What I'd raided his, his panel shop uh, a couple of weeks before. Oh, my God, yeah. Anyway, so uh, shortly after that I got a phone call. I'm just looking for the stuff here. Shortly after that I got a phone call that um, – and it was Verasso and my wife, Tina, was on the extension. And uh, here we are. 
he said it's Bill. He actually said it was Bill Verasso. And the night before, uh, Inspector, Chief Inspector Brian Crawford received a call at police headquarters that saying that um, he was going to get a gun and shoot a policeman's family. Well, Brian knew the about, everyone knew about the inquiry, and he thought it was me. He rang me anyway. Uh, the next day, I got a phone call from Barasso. Tina answered, and. Uh, he said, it's Bill Verasso here, I'm going to blow your head off. And I said, what do you think you're doing ringing me here? Because, again, this is a transcript because we were wired up most of the time. He said, I know where you live. I'm not fussy whether I get you or your wife or your kids, but I'll fucking get you. My wife was listening in an extension interjection. I said, that's nice talk, and I told her to hang up. And he said, you had no right to take car numbers from my work at the workshop today. I said I was quite entitled to do it, and I just said, don't stop the threat. So I used a bit of language, a bit of colourful stuff. Um, he said, I gave you my phone number and address, and I said, both your address and phone number you gave us were false. Uh, you'll have your opportunity to assist in the inquiry when you answer the subpoena I served you on today. He said, I've been living you know, different other places. I'm going to blow your head off. And he said, um, he said, you had no right to ring my sister-in-law. I said, I'm quite entitled to try and find out your correct address now. I suggest you hang up and cease threatening me. I, he said, I will get you or your wife and kids. I mean what I say. Now, after that, <coughs> I was armed and so was Steve and, and Errol were, were armed 24-7. And uh, there was an occasion where... The local police crime cars found my garage door open. Ed Brasso admitted to me later that he was in there. And oh, I came home one night and my front door had been broken in. Well, he was in the kitchen. And um, I know it was him. Anyway, uh, I had my two girls with me and they were very young at that stage and I tried to shoo them into the house next door and they wouldn't let go of my hand. So I didn't get him. I was armed at the time and I would, quite frankly, I would have blown him in two in a part. I would have because he was just a very dangerous man. Yeah. And anyway, he he uh, the police got him in the end, and he was committed. And uh, the police surgeon John Birrell went out to see him to have him permanently, whatever. And he he, he assaulted John Birrell with a telephone book, oh. and nearly right. killed poor old John. So anyway, so we we sort of got through that period. But it was pretty scary, particularly for a wife and kids. I mean, uh, you know. Um, I sometimes wish- Rob, Rob, how 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 do you get through that though? How how do you manage the fear, for instance, uh, within yourself that your wife and children? I mean, this man is serious. He's you know he's in your house and he's told you what he's going to do. But how do you deal with that and your wife and your kids? Like that is, oh my goodness, I don't know how you could. What did you do? Um- well, to be perfectly frank, Narelle, um, I was worried about the wife and kids. And I mean, I made you should be. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I drive them, and they were very well aware of the situation. Um, but we were kept abreast of where Barasso was all the time after the, the incident. And he was in and out of a mental asylum. Well, he went into a mental asylum to avoid being charged. That's, that's no doubt about that whatsoever. Yeah. Um, did, did you. Did you um, have police or somebody in your house to protect you when, I don't know, you're asleep or when you weren't there and your wife and kids were there or did they move out? How how did you manage all that? Well, a lot of the time I had a marked police car, so I parked it in the driveway, um, which should put him off. And, look, there was constant patrols. He wasn't going to do anything in daylight hours, that's for sure. We knew that. 
well, we, we assumed that, but it was pretty. But, you know, there was the police were coming past my house every 15 minutes and were being very obvious and they'd come past and put the blue light on and whatever. So we were reassured quite a bit. And uh, um, so you just get on with it. And no, I didn't move the kids out or anything because I think that's I think that's really um, in hindsight it probably wouldn't have been a bad idea. But we, look, I didn't I didn't think it was necessary, and they were okay with okay. it. Um, yeah. The, the yeah. two little girls were probably too young to realise it, but my wife okay. uh, Tita was okay, and I just told her to be very careful. I mean, he was he was a reckless threat. Yeah, okay. yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, just some of the some of the points. Some of the, some of the potential witnesses were in fact offenders, but we look, we didn't know. And um, thankfully for the green folder, it was funny at the uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, the green folder became very famous um, because the jury had access to the green folders, and as did the judge and uh, the defence and all that sort of stuff. Now. The, the trial went for uh, – it was the longest trial in uh, at that stage for fraud matters in the history of the Victoria Police being involvement. I think it was 95 days, it was sitting days. And, wow. and quite through the whole exercise, I said the main offender was George Tringus and the assessors who all got uh, – George – I said to George on a number of occasions, I said, George, I said, you're staffed. I said, plead guilty, you'll get five years if you're lucky, if you – if you pursue this not guilty stuff, you'll get mm. 10. Anyway, he pursued the not guilty stuff until um, basically the the last couple of days and he he, 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 um, he pleaded guilty, as did one of the assessors, Richard Grayson. And the, and the judge was – he gave him 10 years. <laughs> um, well, you did, you did warn him. I did warn him. And the judge actually made the comment, which I have here um, – it seems that uh, he said legal aid funds were diminishing at a huge expense while other trials are held up. Um, and he said it was a great concern that they uh, they had uh, taken so, so much legal t- time and uh, legal aid money. And it seems to me that legal aid seems to be regarded as a bottomless pit. So he was very angry with George. And, um, Good. So he got ten years, and and a lot of them got jail, but we we charged we probably we probably charged a lot more than seventeen, uh, and withdrew them later on because, as I said, we were putting pressure on, and uh, and that that worked in the end because the, a lot of people came forward in the end because of that pressure and actually gave us information that made the uh, made the investigation a lot more manageable, but. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. Rob, did did you have this? Obviously, took a lot of man hours. Oh, yeah. um, did you have any resistance from anyone, um, you know, above you about the time it was taking or the time it would take, like the man hours, etc., and the fact that uh, you know you were required, I imagine, to almost be on call twenty four seven. Did you have any resistance from management? Far from it, Narelle. They're all too oh, bloody good. scared to ask about it because it was too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. Yeah. They were arm's length. They didn't want to know. Uh, all the indications, we were locking people up left, right and centre. Um, yeah. So 
they were they were very well aware, and we all got uh, we got a big tick. We we all got very strong chief commissioner's commendations out of it in the end. So you should. So they were, they were well aware that we'd uh, that we were doing a pretty good job, and being twenty four seven, you are right. Right through the trial uh, for months. We were basically working, Steve and I were working seven days a week because we had to organise witnesses for the next day. So weekends weren't their hours. And there's a bit of a side story to that because uh, the only break that we had during the trial was actually the main days at Christmas for a week. Um, the judge, just trying to think it was, uh, oh, Judge, judge uh, John, uh, Justice Nicholson, John Nicholson, he was a great judge. And he said, well, we're only we're going to sit, uh, but I'm giving you a week off over Christmas. So I went back to the fraud squad office and I thought, oh, God, I can draw a breath. And the chief superintendent of the CIB in those days, uh, I can't think of his name, uh, put me on night shift. <laughs> you joke. Oh, don't, Rob. He did not. He did. Anyway, my <gasps> boss was uh, Ken Brown, chief superintendent, who was a terrific bloke. And... He, I went into the office and said, hey, Ken, I said, this is a bit much. I'm absolutely stuffed. And yeah. he's put me on night shift. Anyway, to his credit, Ken rang the, uh, I think it was uh, probably uh, Assistant Commissioner Crime. And I, I won't repeat what he said, but <laughs> it was unbelievable. Anyway, I didn't do the night shift. But, no. you know, we were organising witnesses and, in, and indeed sometimes we were taking further statements for further witnesses during this whole trial. So it was basically 24-7 uh, for months and um, I was exhausted at the end of it. it. You were going on adrenaline at the end. But anyway, we, looked, we, we got the result we wanted and yeah. I, uh, I saw George Tringus. Now, George, the, the other thing, just to put more pressure on, George Tringus lived about – four kilometres from me in Chapora Court in Templestowe, which is just off Circles Road, basically. And I used to ride my bike around there because I'd be taking photographs of cars in his driveway, the people he said he didn't know. And um, and he'd see me there on my bike and he'd come out and glare at me and all that sort of stuff. And um, I'd just laugh. And there was a couple of others that lived within proximity of me. So I'd get on my, my push bike and just ride around and take photos and just make a nuisance of myself. Look, walk past the cars and take numbers and whatever. So just a little bit more pressure. But it was actually quite funny. Um, but, but, I- but, you know, Rob, you it just shows that that passion when you get a job or an investigation, but we call them jobs, when you get a job and you get – you almost become obsessed with it, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And just the fact that you're getting on your bike, and as you said before, it's um, for, you know, the as you explained to want to be detectives or training detectives out there, that is just a perfect example of getting off your backside and going out there and doing the hard yards, as you said, not sitting behind a desk and, you know, going through social media or something. I'm not saying like now, yes, social media, you can get some great evidence, but getting off your backside and doing that, oh, God, Rob, that's amazing. The the problem these days, I think, apart from, look, there's some great police work and there's some great people in the squads that I know and whatever, but being a, um, a metropolitan detective these days, I was at Hawthorne CIB and uh, I had two years there with some fantastic detectives, uh, Ray Douse, Johnny Peterson, Wolfa Barker, and we worked honestly 10 or 12 hours a day 
and yeah. we couldn't get around to locking up all the po- – I still had probably 50 or 60 people I wanted to interview before I – and that's a good story there – before I – before I, I left the CIB, and the reason I the reason I left Hawthorne CIB is a good story. And have, you, have we got time for it? Absolutely. All right. Well, I, I get the feeling, Rob, that there are stories um, out of stories, and we could be here all day. But yeah, tell me about this. I, I love your stories. Well, whilst I was at Hawthorne CIB, and as I say, we were working. The detective senior constables were working, and fantastic. We had some great response, uh, great jobs that mm. we finished up doing and mm. successfully. But the sergeants there wouldn't work in a barrel of yeast with a lid on it. They were bloody terrible. And in fact, there was some criminal act activity happening there and I uh, noticed it and I actually went and I won't mention his name because he, he's now dead and he was my boss in Cyprus. But I went to the um, um, chief inspector who was in charge of the district, he was at Richmond and I said to him, I'll never forget, I said, listen, oh, his Christian name was Norm, I said, Norm, I said, either you do something about, when he's, one of them was Dingy Harris who actually ended up going to jail, I said either you do something about Dingy, Dingy Harris and a couple of other names I mentioned um, or else you're going to have to get me out of Hawthorne CLB because I'm going to lock them up. I was in the armed robbers the next day. Didn't want to know about it. Really? Now, Dingy got his right whack later. And I didn't know it was all happening. Like it was a fraud matter to start with, and they wouldn't. No one ever told me because they knew if they put me on the job. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Dingy was just a bad man. And um, anyway, so that, that, what I was getting at is that these days, unfortunately, uh, I think what happens with uh, metropolitan detectives. Um, regardless, I'm sure they, they're working very hard. They cherry pick. They cherry pick the easy ones. They don't have to do the investigation, and I'm not all of them, but I can see, I've seen it, I've witnessed it, that a lot of them cherry pick. In other words, take mm-hmm. the easy ones. Uh, if you take a fraud matter to a metropolitan detective, it'll end up in the too hard drawer. They will never touch them. They will never touch them because it's yeah. just too hard. And they yeah. don't have the skills. The worst thing they ever did, I was in charge of, as a senior sergeant, in charge of the fraud squad for a period of time. And I had 74 detectives working in that fraud squad. And they were all well trained, highly skilled people. I actually was part of the training, and I, I was a director of studies at the Australian Commercial Crime Course in, um, in Manly uh, two years in a row. Uh, it's two or three month course uh, teaching the best fraud squad detectives and they were fantastic people and they were great yeah. detectives. They were well trained and they they would track an elephant through snow. They were really, really good. And what have we got now? All of that went by the, the wayside and any fraud matters now, unless it's political or it's millions and millions of dollars goes out to the uh, the detectives' offices in the, and they haven't got time and they haven't no. got the skills. Simple as that. Yeah, I don't know if I'd agree that they haven't got the skills, but I think the time is the the time pressures that um, whether, you know, detectives or just on the van, they just don't have the time anymore. The role they, have, I, they haven't got the skills in terms of fraud matters. They have got no idea. Oh, in, righto, fraud matters. Okay. So what, what sort of skills uh, in fraud matters, like I understand with, um, say, my uh, forte was sex matters and that's um, about talking to people. Yes. 
and um, sitting down with them and being interested in, let's say, why somebody wanted to rape some, you know, all that sort of stuff. What are the skills that you need in a fraud investigation? I imagine um, analytical figures, all that sort of stuff, or is that being a bit basic? It's a bit basic. And I mean, <laughs> I knew you'd say that. <laughs> I mean, I, I've given a few talks at Rotary, and I've been asked the question before. They, they, you know, for yeah. example, what's the difference between the um, robbery squad and the fraud squad, uh, or fraud matters? And I said, well, with an armed robbers, you know what's been done, but you're not sure who it is. With a fraud matter, you usually know who it is, but you haven't got a bloody clue what they've done. So you've actually got to, you've got to be so analytical to go through. And, you know, I'm talking about some what we call round robins where they float a check between, 50, you know, around 50 companies which have never been cleared called kite flying. And you've got to sit down and you've got to analyse what's happened, where the money trail is, who's been involved. I mean, it is, it is, and I don't blame the local detectives because it's just time consuming hard work. Okay. It's really, yeah, yeah. really hard work. And to interview someone for it, I mean, up until, uh, I mean, as recent as, well, I won't give a date, but we, mm-hmm. when we had, we had, we prosecuted our own committals um, at uh, magistrates' courts and whatever for trials because the prosecutors in those days didn't not, didn't have the skills to cross-examine people yeah. or give... Couldn't just, get their head, yeah, couldn't get their head around they'd it. They'd look yeah. at it and just yeah. shake their head. And I'll give you one good example of how tricky it could be. I um, I had... It was beneficial finance and it was up at Shepparton and I was asked to go up there. And what this fellow had done, he was in charge there and he, at the end of every month... He transferred um, good accounts across the delinquent accounts so that he wasn't showing any delinquent accounts of people that hadn't paid whatever, you know, what their interest and payments were and everything, so that he looked good. And I took it before the magistrate's court for this one, and the magistrate said, um, no, well, he hasn't permanently deprived anyone. And I said, well, this is the Crimes Theft Act 1983, 84 it came in. I said, Your Honour, I said, the definition of permanently deprived is to assume the rights of the owner. Yes. He was convicted. Okay, so they're the, the, the skills that you need to know, the Crimes Theft Act backwards. And yeah, indeed, yeah. in every civil matter that I know, there is some sort of criminal element. For example, any sort of trick is actually criminal. Mm, yeah. It's a deception. Yeah. So, and when, you, you know, I know a lot of people have taken what I thought, I believe, are solid fraud matters to local detectives. They... They just say it's a civil matter. Well, it's not. Yeah. But yeah. again, I don't blame them because they haven't got thought. You know, with the way that the community is now, they are, they've got their hands full, and the last thing they need is a protracted investigation. And where do they send it to? Yeah, the fraud squad's got twelve people in it at the moment. Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. Well, the last last time I knew, there was twelve. That's a little bit different from 74. Yeah, well, they call up people to go in there to do special investigations, but it's it's only for, honestly, Norella, it's for political, anything that's got a political impact, they'll, they'll staff it. Otherwise, or, or it's a multi, multi-million dollar one, and then they'll form a task force. Mm. So, hey, 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 you probably, um, I don't know if you did, I'm just going to ask you about the search warrants. Yes. Because um, I've done a few in my time where, we uh, we got. I was uh, required to 
um, supply donuts. Um, and for those listeners out there, um, when you do a search warrant and you come up with nothing or not what you were hoping to get, um, you are there is a oh, tradition that you supply donuts to the whole search team. Did you ever have to supply donuts at any of your search warrants? And I'm thinking the answer is going to be no. But I can't <laughs> recall, Your Honour. <laughs> yeah, touche. <laughs> Ah, that's funny. I admit it. I did a couple with it that I had to buy donuts, but anyway. Hey, um, uh, you told me that the database that your team implemented at Still Use Today, that must make you feel pretty bloody proud of what you achieved. Well, I mean, it made common sense to me, Narelle. I mean, you've got all these fictitious accidents and all that sort of stuff, and none of the insurance companies, they guarded their own information like, uh, you know, gold. Um, and it was very simple to overcome that by having an independent database, which is now the Insurance Council of Australia, or it's run by BMIA, I think, these days. Mm. But mm. but the only information that went in, there's been an accident, involved these cars and these people, or, or that involved four people, it doesn't, have, doesn't matter who it is, but they do put the names in as well because there's still a multiplicity of claims. People will claim, for example, they had an accident, they got injured and they go through, uh, uh, t- what is it, TAC, uh, and get paid out from there and they also go on work cover and there's still no link between work cover and TAC. They simply asked a question, um, have mm. you claimed anything else? And they don't double check. Well, they didn't the last time I checked. They don't double mm. check that there's no multiplicity of claims in other areas. Crazy, mm. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, you, just going back to the, the fraud file, um, you said that 17 or probably more uh, were charged. Yes. Um, how many were actually um, convicted and sent to jail? Okay. Uh, I'm just going through it. Richard Gration, three years imprisonment. He was an assessor. John Kiriakis, that was dismissed. I never had any evidence. Um, Theo Securus. Donuts. Donuts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he, got, he got a month. Uh, Securus yeah. got a month. And these are just people that had that. You, Tringus. She was three years. Uh, Lacurus, 16 days. He got not, not much. Um, 16 so, days. Yeah. Seriously. Oh, these, Serious. A lot of these people were pawns. And the only reason I okay. – yeah, and they were magistrates, court stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. One guy got nine years. Uh, George Tringer's mm. got 10 years. Richard Gration, who was uh, the assessor, got five years. Um, wow. Oh, I'm just looking yeah. through my diary. I've got Gangitano and Darren Inch we can talk about. I'll lock them up. Um, yeah. <laughs> what do you, what you um, lock up Gangitano for? Uh, you know the um, the underbelly film where uh, the pool room incident? The pool room, was that in King Street? With, yeah, um, yeah. Well, the, the, oh, yeah, yeah, where there was a whole lot of people um, attack, um, yeah, assaulted, wasn't there, him and – yeah, well. Some, the, yeah, anyway, yeah. Anyway, no, I locked Gangitano up on the 23rd of December, 1984. Merry Christmas, <laughs> Alphonse. <laughs> Assault occasion yeah. actually bodily harm. Now, um, he never, um, what can I say? He never went to court for that matter. However, there was a lot of matters that were cleaned up. Right. 
Okay. But the, that's for another day because the whole story about Gangitano and that particular incident around that time is for another day because it's quite complicated and it's also hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, right. just to give you an indication, um, I interviewed him after the police, the uniform police had, um, had a crack at it, but no good. And I mm. secretly taped him. He was chasing me around the desk, which was on the tape that I had uh, hidden under a newspaper after he saw the tape recorder. And you can hear me saying on the tape, uh, Alphonse, I'm the one with the gun. Stop chasing me. Hey, from what I've heard, he might have had a gun too. Not there, he didn't know. He'd been searched and all that sort of but the, Oh, okay. Of course, yeah. Sorry. That's, yeah, that's a yeah. good story. But, um, yeah. You know, can, can I just digress a little bit there? Uh, I was in Carlton in the days of uh, the Carlton crew. Yes. And I always remember um, I only met uh, Alphonse Gangitano once. Number one is I couldn't get over how handsome he was. Yeah, he'd been a big boy, <laughs> oh, a big guy. Wow, wow. Uh, anyway, but I remember at the time we were getting oh, lots of the peripheral people, periphery, um, uh, uh, with um, uh, oh, assaults and standovers and all that. Anyway, I always remember we used to have a bail justice by the name of Rowena Also. Oh, yes. And I always remember, Rowena, whatever time, you'd call at 3 a.m. of a morning, uh, you'd call at uh, oh, 7 o'clock at night, it didn't matter. Rowena would arrive with the most beautifully coiffed hair her makeup was just she was an amazing woman and you know we all used to think and I think it's you know it's not um secret or anything but there was also always talk that her and Gangitano were in a relationship but I believe uh that she actually gave ever uh, not gave evidence gave a, a eulogy or his eulogy at his funeral and she was very close to him and I don't believe like we always used to think it was a, a relationship but apparently his wife is the one that asked her to give the eulogy um yes yeah, so gee that just brought back a memory there for uh, Rowena Allsop and I believe she's um you know she's always been in justice like she's done some amazing things when maybe we're a bit harsh with her I don't know but uh yeah I I always remember she had the most beautiful nails. Oh, that woman. Yeah. Just as an aside, um, with with uh, Alphonse Gangitano, the priest that uh, officiated his funeral was, uh, was Victor Ferrugia, who's a charismatic priest who was then um, a great friend of mine and, and I was pretty much his confidant, if you know what I mean. Every priest needs a confidant. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I was going to charge him with, or get him charged with consorting because he did for he, he did every one of the major criminals that got shot in the in the underworld murders. I think he did all of their funerals. So um, yeah, yeah. I don't know why he copped them all, but he was at um, Our Lady Help of Christians uh, at Brunswick, a lovely fellow. But yeah. in the end, it actually got to him a bit um, doing all this stuff and mixing with these people. So he suffered a bit from that that whole exercise. But uh, I haven't seen him for three or four years now, but I think he's in a good place again. But it certainly affected yeah. him. But it just it seems bizarre that uh, they all were attracted to this charismatic priest to do his fun- their funerals. So uh, I was just going to say, was uh, did he, oh, I suppose enjoy is the wrong word, but the fact that he was um, uh, what? Do, what's the word? Um, uh, in charge of a funeral with so many, like let's call them gangsters. I wonder why they all went to him. Probably, as you say, because he was just so charismatic. I think he enjoyed the notoriety. To be honest. <laughs> 
That's funny. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a passion of yours, uh, police veterans and mental health of veterans and police in general. Um, Can you tell us, because you're very involved in in that side of things, can you tell us a little bit about your efforts um, uh, to help veterans and where that all started? He's quite a storyteller, isn't he? Uh, Well, the stories continue next week with me uh, laughing out loud a couple of times, just picturing his stories in my mind. Oh, Rob. Anyway, look, next week uh, Rob shares with us what he's been up to since leaving Victoria Police. Um, His passion is about supporting police veterans because, quite frankly, there isn't a great deal of support for them or or us apart from the retirement dinner the Police Association put on for us, which I've got to say is pretty special. And, of course, Police Veterans Victoria, where Dave McGowan and his team are going from strength to strength. In fact, Rob was instrumental in forming the PVV, Police Veterans Victoria, way back, but I'll leave it for Rob uh, to tell you about that. I've got no doubt Rob's support has been crucial for some veterans just trying to make it through a tough day. And who wouldn't feel better (laughs) after listening to Rob? Oh, he is a breath of fresh air, isn't he? Uh, Next week, I've got to say my last question to Rob um, in our chat really stopped me in my tracks. I don't know what I was expecting when I asked if there was a particular investigation he was proud of, but I know it will affect you like it affected me. Anyway, look, have a great week. Um, We'll chat next week with part two of my interview with Rob Bailey. Thanks. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. (laughs) Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com